The reading is taken from Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and ending at verse 14. It begins like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied, multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. It's great to be with you this afternoon. Thanks for coming. I want to talk to uh, you about immigration, ethnic cleansing, slavery and abortion. So let's get into it. (laughs) Actually, I don't want to talk about those things. I want you to notice them in this passage in Exodus 1. But what I really want to talk about is... The reason that they're here in this passage. These things are happening in the context of Exodus chapter 1 because of a collision of worldviews. And what I mean by that is that we see a coming together of those who view the world as having God in charge and those who think that man is in charge, someone else other than God is in charge. Viewing the world as being created and therefore we live in a world where we are answerable to the creator or viewing the world as a case of survival of the fittest every man for themselves so on the one hand in our passage we have god's people honoring him in the way that they live on the other we have pharaoh doing what he wants and people doing what he says god's people are immigrants in a foreign land they came there were only 70 of them originally verse 5 tells us that They came because their ancestor Joseph, who was raised up by God to be prime minister in Egypt, um, uh, he, he was there and he was able to feed them in a famine. And so they came for that reason. Now Joseph has died and his influence has gone and the new Pharaoh who had liked Joseph and therefore tolerated his people, the new Pharaoh has come and is in place and he hates God's people. He's threatened by their growth in number and so he makes them slaves he in, in, in puts them into a slavery program look at verse 10 with me come we must deal shrewdly with them he says or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out will join our enemies fight against us and leave the country so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor they were treated ruthlessly verse 13 and their lives were made bitter with harsh labor verse 13 and 14 The question is, where is God in all of this? 
Where is God when the culture is like this? It feels like he's absent. In fact, if you read the whole of Exodus chapter 1, his name is only mentioned in passing. The author is almost making the point. God seems absent in all of this situation. And what happens when that's the case? On top of this, later in the chapter, Pharaoh does a a kind of uh, controlling the birth rate thing by making a law that you have to kill the babies that are born, the male children. uh, uh, And and when the midwives say that they're not going to do that, he then says, well, when they are born, we throw them into into the river. It is what we would call today ethnic cleansing. Where is God in all of this? It's absolutely terrible. But it happens because of this collision of worldviews, a collision really of authorities. The question is, who's in charge? God seems absent. His people are suffering. Well, who's really in charge here? Now, despite the fact that they're suffering, the Israelites are living for God. They want to honor him. Verse 7, can you see? The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, we know that this is them being obedient to God because that is the first command that was given to God's people. In Adam and Eve, what's called the creation mandate. And one of the unmissable points is this this idea that they're giving themselves to obedience to God by having so many children, filling and subduing the earth as he called them to do. For Pharaoh and for the Egyptians, their authority is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's authority is Pharaoh. The Egyptians' authority is Pharaoh. And what he does is directly opposed to what God has commanded. Again, look at verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. He's concerned about the fact that they are doing what God has told them to do and they are becoming numerous. Pharaoh's goal here is to thwart the plan of God. And so he gets his taskmaster set about putting this inhumane and murderous plan into action. Pharaoh has devoted himself to his own power. And these people are devoted to Pharaoh. Now what this collision we see here does, what it exposes is the question really at the heart of all reality. And it's this, by what authority will you live? With all of the competing visions of life that our culture holds out, which one is right, which is true, And who says? Is it the state? Pharaoh? The establishment? The people? Is it the in crowd? Is it the mob? Who decides? You see, now, if the world is just time and chance and matter, you can't actually morally compel anyone to do anything. You might want me to live in a certain way because it's better for society, but you can't tell me that the way I'm living, if you don't like it, is wrong. Because there's no such thing in a purely material world. Genocide, slavery, ethnic cleansing, the things that we see here, those things might be bad for the people who suffer them. But we can't say that they're evil because there's no such thing in a world without God. So who sets the agenda for your life? Can I ask you that? Who sets the agenda for your life in this collision zone? And does that agenda have any basis in reality? If if you're a secular person, you might want to say, well, look, I deal in facts rather than taking a leap of faith like you Christians do. But that's not actually true, is it? Because when it comes to foundational questions of reality, that is, why is there a world? Why is there something and not nothing? All of us, whoever we are and whatever we say we believe, we believe things that are unprovable, things that we take, if you like, on faith. So you can't 
by definition, prove a foundational belief because it's the belief on which everything rests and so therefore, by definition, doesn't require proof. It's the thing that is, that just is. It's, it's the thing right at the bottom on which everything else stands. So does your authority make sense? And does it actually serve human flourishing? That's what we want, isn't it? Now, if you're a Christian, and I suspect most of us here today are, you know this tension that you see here in this passage. As these authorities collide, you know that it's hard and it's painful for God's people. And that's where many of us live today in our culture. It may be very real in your experience even right now. You know that you believe true things about God, but these things are challenged at every turn. Everyone that you speak to, everybody that you engage with challenges these views and makes it difficult for you. And it may be that there are times when, if you're honest with yourself, you think, I don't know that this is all going to work out okay. I don't know that God is really going to come through. I wonder, is this all real? So if that's where we are as the worlds collide, how then should we live? Well, Exodus 1, this passage, I think, highlights two commitments, two commitments that we have to hold. The first is a commitment to faith. To live by faith. You see, when we read in this passage about the people of God being fruitful and multiplying, what they're doing is trusting God and living by his commands. Things get tough, very tough, and they could stop. That's what Pharaoh wants them to do. But no, they keep going. They are living by faith in an unseen God who they trust has spoken and he has told them what he wants. And they do this even when the culture pushes against them in the most brutal fashion. And we must do the same. In our day, we must take God at his word and we must follow him wherever it takes us. Wherever his word takes us. That what it, that's what it means to live by faith. To listen to what God says in his word and to go with it whatever it means. And one obvious example where that will bite for us is the command that Jesus gives to his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. In fact, that is the creation mandate that the, uh, the, the Israelites in Exodus 1 were obeying for the new, uh, the new covenant. That's the creation mandate, you could say, for a fallen world. If the world will be full of people who love and serve God as God desires, well, they must be redeemed in order to do that. And of course, we know that telling people about the fact that there is a God and there is such a thing as sin, that we have cut ourselves off from God because we've rebelled against him, and that there is only salvation found in Jesus Christ, those things are unpopular today. And it's tough then when the collision of worldviews makes that message sound implausible. But as it was in Exodus 1, and as it remains today, we do what God calls us to do, and we do it in faith, whether it's popular or not. We know that the only hope that there is for a broken world is Jesus Christ and love compels us to share that hope with others. So first of all, living in the collision zone requires faith. Secondly, it requires courage. So when you're suffering and the sole reason that you are suffering is because you are a follower of God, you belong to God's people and you want to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. If that's the reason you're suffering. It takes courage to keep going. 
the next verse in this passage speaks of the Hebrew midwives. And let, let me read it to you. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. See, when the worldviews collide, these women go with God. Can you imagine how risky that was? Pharaoh was not averse to cutting people up if they didn't do what he said. But I want you to notice as well, this courage is really, is really quite straightforward and very simple because all they do is their job. They just simply keep doing their job. They delivered a baby, they handed it to the mother, they fixed them up and they sent them home. And a bit later on in the passage again when uh, Pharaoh confronts them about this, they stand up to him and they tell him an outrageous lie and they have to answer for their behavior. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to go on obeying God's word when society is against you. And the reality is that the pressure to concede always works its way down into our personal lives, into our own experience, the decisions, the ordinary decisions of everyday life. In some cases, it'll be an ethical issue when you just have to say no, like the midwives, I suppose. For all of us, it'll be the reproach of the culture when you refuse to cheer along with what we're told we have to cheer along with, and you have to say, no, obedience to God won't allow that. When it comes to the crunch, we say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I've committed myself to him no matter what. And that takes courage. It's not easy. But don't forget, one of the lessons of Exodus chapter 1 that is so clear is that it is always through hardship that God brings his plans to pass. Even in the midst of suffering here in this passage, God is at work for good. Look again at verse 12. Pharaoh is doing his worst, but the more the people were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. When you're struggling in the collision zone, Keep trusting the God who is in control and who is bringing his plans to pass. And don't forget that we here today, as we sit here today, we have even more to go on, even more reason to trust him for that. Why? Well, remember that other occasion where evil and oppression looked like it had won the day. When it looked as if God was absent in the midst of terrible suffering, where was God in the midst of this? Remember the cross of Christ. See, at the cross we see the greatest evil and the greatest suffering that there has ever been. And yet God is bringing his plans to pass. You wonder if you'd stood there at the foot of the cross that day and seen Jesus there, the Son of God, hanging on the cross. You'd have thought, why, oh why, would God not bring this suffering to an end? And he didn't bring it to an end because it was essential for his plans for good, namely the salvation of billions of of people and if it can be true that God is good even in the worst case of evil and suffering the world has ever known it must also be true of every lesser case of suffering as well including yours whatever that might be any collision is painful whether it's in the playground it's on the sports field or it's in traffic when things come together at speed, it hurts. 
And when worldviews collide, it is no different. And so we need faith to see that God is in control throughout. And we need the courage to trust him no matter what. And we will get that as we look again and again to Christ. Let me close us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are in control of your world. We thank you that even when it is painful for us who seek to follow you, that you are in charge and you are working your purposes out perfectly. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom salvation is found and the one that we can look to in the midst of our suffering to know that you are working your purposes out for good. We thank you for him and we pray this in his name. Amen.